This episode of the Insurance Coffee House is sponsored by Insurance Search. Insurance Search provides executive recruitment services to insurance companies and brokers in the UK and across the United States. Visit insurance-search.com for more details. The Insurance Coffee House, the place where you get to meet and learn from some of the most successful insurance business leaders from across the world. Hosted by Nick Hoadley, CEO of Insurance Search. Welcome to the Insurance Coffee House Global InsureTech Series. I'm Nick Hoadley, and each week you can join me as I interview leading InsureTech executives from around the world. We will be learning about the different InsureTech technologies and finding out how they can be a benefit to both insurance brokers and carriers when it comes to delivering for your customers. We'll also be learning about the different career opportunities available to insurance leaders within the InsureTech space and what benefits that can give to your career. I hope you enjoy the show. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Steve Lekas, who is the co-founder and CEO at Branch Insurance. Branch Insurance are a home and auto insurtech business headquarters in Columbus, Ohio, and it's a pleasure to welcome Steve to the show today. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thanks so much for having me, Nick. I'm glad to be here. Steve, it's great to have you here. Really looking forward to hearing more about Branch Insurance and some of the great work you're doing there. Before we get to that, though, Steve, would you mind sharing with our listeners a little bit more about your personal background, your career background, and what led to you starting the business? Yeah, Nick, the two are definitely entwined. But my personal background was I, I got into insurance when I was a sophomore in college. And so while at university, I was putting myself through school. And I found that there was a large insurance company near where I lived who, after you worked there a year, they would start paying your, your tuition. And so um, <clears throat> I was going to school for technology at the time, but you know I had a high schooler's uh, a level of, of experience. And, uh, and so you know I couldn't seem to get a job there. I ended up applying there uh, regularly, online, in person. And, you know, like walking up a paper CV to the door. And then also uh, over the course of a year, I managed to uh, make contact with about three different HR reps at the company. And I would call them on a rotating basis uh, until finally they were frustrated enough with my intent to work for them. Uh, that they told me, you know, someone lovingly said over the phone that, you know, you're you're entirely unqualified for the job that you're applying for. Why don't you just take an entry level job and then like you'll have a foot in the door? And so I thought that sounds like a great idea. So I took a job. I started in claims and first notice of loss. Uh, ultimately, um, uh, in claims became a, a small property claims adjuster um, before moving into technology at the company. And and from technology, you know, a similar story. Uh, I realized that the company I worked for didn't really plan to use technology. It was so back office in the part of technology I was in that I never even really got to see what insurance was. And I thought, you know, I like the company, and if I'm going to be here then I should understand how it works. And so I managed to get into the leadership development program of the underwriting division, you know, not as a, not because they were planning to hire me, but because uh, I just managed to sit in the back of the classroom and ask a lot of questions. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the 
senior leaders who's teaching classes, you know, wanted to know who this person was he didn't know in the class uh, that asked all of the questions. And uh, ultimately, underwriting pulled me in uh, and I got my first, you know, this was where I learned I had been reading contract language to settle claims. Now I was reading contract language to understand how we defined a risk that in with which we underwrote. Uh, and from underwriting into product development and then product management, where we managed the, the P&L of the business. And then at that company, they acquired a direct-to-consumer business, which was just, just selling auto insurance at the time, asked me to build what became the first online home insurance business in the United States. And from there, I left insurance proper and went to a data company. And I became the largest seller of data and predictive analytics to PNC insurers in many countries, but especially in the United States. And along the way, I had this frustration that the company I was working for had been shrinking policyholders since longer than I'd been alive. Mm. And it just, it was this moment um, because premium grows because of inflation, right? It's premiums are the, the prospective uh, losses, uh, building materials and labor costs, right? Um, plus expenses uh, trended forward. And so it really masked the fact that we'd been shrinking for so long because we'd been growing just on a, a smaller CAGR than premium trend. And so, you know, just the idea that you could be this big and well-known and be shrinking for this long. And we had so many well-intentioned, bright people and investors, and yet we couldn't make new hay in the marketplace. And this is what set me on the path on something of a personal obsession with understanding how insurance companies became big. And in answering that question, I fell in love with the history of insurance only because there were so many answers to why the things that we do today happen at all. And the combination of all of these new answers to why that frequently I uniquely knew. I mean, like many of these things, most people are have been dead for so long who who had this this shared experience that isn't well documented in our in our history. And then having built from scratch, having run a D to C business, having grown up in an agency business, and then having an understanding of the economics of data and where it existed and how it could be used in a unique way. All of those experiences uh, in a moment made creating a company incredibly compelling for me personally. And that that was how we got here, or at least how I got to the point where I couldn't sleep at night and uh, and then felt like something had to happen. Fantastic. Steve, that's such a fantastic backstory. Clearly a real student of the industry and and that learning that you've done there across your career. Technology, insurance seems to have been intertwined throughout that whole process. And also with that curiosity of asking a lot of questions and finding out why things are like this and looking to solve problems as well. So it sounds like this is all, this has all come to a point where, where you had to start your own business and, and create your own solution to clearly an issue in the market. Can we talk about that early stage then of starting branch? How did you go about doing that? Very easy to think about that you've got a better way of doing something where you think there's a problem that can be solved. How did you go about doing that? And what were some of those first steps? Nick, it's a great question. You know, and I think it sounds so easy and straightforward, but it's anything but those two things. I mean, I think the first step was real conviction 
in my mind, because I had a great job, comfortable lifestyle. We had grown well in our ability to create uh, wealth for ourselves and our family. We had grown well in businesses. And, uh, and you really have to you know, want it, knowing that it's going to be full of adversity as a journey, as well as you're going to have to do a bunch of things you've never done. So uncomfortable. And so once, once I believed that it, it had to be done, it was compelling in a way that is uh, without choice. Then uh, I had to, I had to convince my wife, uh, you know, my life partner that this was the right thing for our family, right. Uh, as a, uh, an equal uh, responsibility uh, or, or more than equal uh, to what I do in my professional life. And, and so with her support, then I made my first pitch for capital. And I, you know, recognize that I all of my experience, which was deep in my field, prepared me in no way for capital raising. Uh, and so uh, I got out there. And one of the things that, that what was interesting about this first pitch is they didn't really believe me. Right. And I think I think that meant is that they see a lot of corporate guys that like fantasize about being founders, about being entrepreneurs. But when, you know, comfort is the enemy of progress is something that I, I tell people frequently. But it's certainly the enemy of taking a massive risk, right? We see that in all parts of our lives. And so when I first pitched, the gentle guidance that this VC gave me is that, you know, what I'm doing is inherently tech and I'd probably benefit from having a credible tech co-founder. Mm. And this to me made just tremendous sense. Uh, I mean, first of all, like there were a lot of things that I didn't know how to do. Fundraising uh, as one certainly wasn't going to build the tech. Like I'd been gone from tech proper for too long to be writing any code that mattered in, in uh, this current environment. And so I started, I started, I'd call it a dark period, uh, but I was on founder dating websites, uh, you know, didn't know how to find a co-founder. And I was calling my friends who I knew had deep technological expertise, optimistically, uh, assuming that they all were happy in their current jobs. Hmm. And I got to reaching out to Joe Emerson, who had most recently founded BuildFax, which was the first kind of aggregation of building permits in the United States. And I got to know him about 10 years earlier when I was his first big buyer of his data as an insurance company. And he'd been selling insurance data for rating and underwriting purposes for the last 10 years at this point. And when I explained to him, like, you know, do you know anybody? And here's what I'm thinking to do. He was intrigued mm. uh, and almost signed up there on the spot. I mean, uh, ultimately we rescoped my plan together. And, but it was really that, that was more, that was as important a Genesis moment uh, as me deciding I had to do this thing. You know, the, it was no longer my idea. Uh, it was our idea. And, and we had a skill set that was complementary and, and we could make this happen. Uh, what, what we have at Branch today would certainly not be the same branch without any of the branchers, uh, as we call ourselves, that, that work here. But, but definitely like uh, how we put this all together from Get uh, had a lot to do with my experiences and Joe's. Again, though, it sounds like asking a lot of questions, asking advice of the right people, leading you towards that goal. I mean, I mean it's fantastic. Steve, clearly you're a very busy man. Clearly business is going very well. What's your go-to coffee of choice when you start the day, when you start the morning? What gets you ready for the day? Uh, you know, I don't drink coffee, but uh, 
but I love a coffee house. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the Brit and the, the American here, I, I've got my, my cup of tea. Uh, oh, very nice. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's uh, black. Uh, so it's English breakfast usually, uh, if that's not more ironic. Very British. Very British. Very nice. Very nice. And, yeah, we don't worry. We don't discriminate against uh, non-coffee drinkers here in the Well, in and the Nick, you know, I, I, was, uh, I was listening to a podcast about the history of insurance. And the author, uh, the host, does a history of of Lloyd's Coffee House, which, yeah. and I thought she did a, a, an incredible job. It's called Insurance versus History. But uh, one of the things that she talked about was that coffee had actually really taken off in England, and uh, there were some great smear campaigns against coffee and the tea trade. You know, money tends to drive so many of our ultimate habits, but yeah. there's this great history in that podcast of of how tea became the drink of choice um, when coffee seemed like it was going to dominate. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, coffee, yeah, coffee and tea were the currencies, aren't they, back then? Probably a bit like how we see some of these campaigns on blockchain and things like that. It's the, the modern-day equivalent. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks for that, Steve. I'll have to check out that podcast as well. Sounds interesting. Yeah, Steve, if we if we can talk about Branch then now. So great to hear how that story developed and, and, and how you, you went about starting the business. Could you give our listeners a snapshot, an overview of where the business is at the moment, what you do? Yeah, Nick, for, for people who don't know Branch, Branch is a couple of things, but I'll focus just on what's really unique about it. First of all, it is... Uh, the first ability in the United States to instantly underwrite auto insurance or home insurance or both of them at the same time. And so when when I say instant, just to define it, it means that when the consumer gives us their name and address, we return a price, a firm offer, and they can then drop it in their cart and check out. There's no further questions to, to qualify you or to change the price. That means that we've never offered a quote, a quote being this, you know, less correct number that we'll give you or present to you to, to consider. But we are also the first company who's ever enabled you to buy home and car and umbrella uh, in a single transaction and as quickly. And so you can bundle for many people, this is all of their PNC insurance in a single transaction in less than a minute. This also allows us to bring insurance because it's so easy into moments that insurance would have normally made sense within, but could never have been brought to bear because you can't embed something that is its own buying flow, right? It, it's too much mechanical or cognitive friction. It needs to be more like buying uh, chewing gum when you're checking out at the grocery store rather than thinking through a whole new value proposition. And so if the purpose of your visit was to buy a home and close on a home loan, then insurance was just a byproduct of having to do that. That's what caused you to need to transfer some of that risk. The other thing that branches that's unique is We set up branch on the ideals that we should seek to do well by doing good. And so we structured ourselves as a public benefits corporation, means that we had to file with the the government the social good that we do, and we're equally obligated to that social good as we are equally obligated to creating shareholder value. 
We then also structured the business in an esoteric way as a reciprocal exchange, which is a managed cooperative. Uh, and I have strong beliefs in the cooperative model and in insurance, particularly because insurance is a product of community. We are pooling resources as the fundamental product itself, taking in the right amount from each of us to represent our perspective risk to the pool, but then giving it back out, reapportioning it according to the shared agreement. And that's the product of community. So the cooperative makes sense more in insurance than it may in other contexts. And I'd argue that this is also why the mutual model exists in insurance in a way it doesn't ex exist in other parts of industry. And then we manage a nonprofit called Safety Nest, where if the good insurance does is first allows you to transfer risk as efficiently as possible, that's defining good, then unfortunately, it's also exclusionary by nature, right? Ineligibility has uh, been around in insurance since almost the beginning of insurance. But on a macro scale, it has also caused us to leave tens of millions of humans outside of the financial protection it offers. And so Safety Nest is designed to combat that financial exclusion problem, uh, which tends to correlate with other financial excluded populations. And so th this combination of doing good, which is what we think you should expect of insurance, and bringing technological and structural innovation to the product enables uh, a really different feel of what it means to be insured for our membership. Fantastic. And if we can perhaps look at the technology side of things a little bit more now, how are you able, what, what's the technology that you built there, which means that you can get a price instantly just from putting your, your name and address into your platform? Nick, the, the technology without giving too much away of how it works. You know, it's it's the combination of first, actually, let me start with the end. It's the combination of understanding how to acquire data and where to get it from. The technology that allows you to rationalize that data to fill out the rating calculation. And then first, you know, coming back to the beginning, if I explain to you how we segment risk at all, uh, for people that may not be totally aware, you, you know, I have a copy of uh, the 1932 spring uh, Sears catalog here in my office. And that was about the beginnings of when Allstate brand insurance was marketed through the Sears catalog. And what you'll find is you would cut out a coupon out of the catalog and it was name and address year make model of car. That was all the data that they gathered. That was the full application. You'd mail in that as your application and they'd mail you back a deck page. Uh, and so what we've learned since then, and especially starting in the late 90s, is that there are many other inputs that can help us segment risk. And segmenting risk is good for the community, right? Because it means that each of us pay our fair share according to the definition of equity, which is if you're going to use the insurance more, the community's pool, you should be putting more into it, right? But if you optimize for risk segmentation, which we kind of as an industry is like a take for granted, but that of course that's what we would do. You have to recognize that in the mechanics of making prices, 
we add friction to the application process every time we find a new predictive input variable. And so what's happened is you had something that was name, address, year, make, model, and that's become, you know, 70 questions that a consumer has to know the answer to and uh, walk out to their car and grab a VIN or, or find their loan number off their uh, lien holders uh, documentation or And so you have this ability and many carriers work through this concept of, well, what's the trade-off in operating friction versus risk segmentation, underwriting value. And this is how you take, you know, part of how you take positive selection or push adverse selection or take ultimately take adverse selection. And so the beginnings of how you could make insurance instant without compromising on underwriting integrity is to constrain the model uh, for what friction you'll introduce to the consumer, which then is informed by how much data you can gather technologically or economically on their behalf so that they don't have to bear the friction cost, which allows you to then think about the business differently. So that that's the framework for how to do it uh, without telling you exactly how it's done. No, and that's fantastic. And I think that obviously the more accurate the pricing in the, you know, the part, the percentage, the pool that people pay into, the better for everyone. But what would you say are the key benefits for those policyholders? Is it the speed which they can get a policy or, or is it the accuracy side of things? What's the key benefit there? Nick, it's all of those. Uh, and it's it's actually, I think the way to think about it for branch is the thing that consumers already know that they know, uh, that they want is consumers already know that they want to pay less than they're paying today, right? Most most switching occurs when a consumer is saving, not when they're not saving. And that's the primary consumer need when they're shopping. When an existing buyer of insurance is shopping, that's their primary need. Their secondary needs tend to be coverage that's close to what they have already, and ease. Uh, and ease, and beneath all of this is trust. I have to trust that you will ultimately be there and you will ultimately you know, be my partner in this, um, especially if I'm not fully confident I understand how insurance works, which most people mm. are not. But the second element, and so Branch delivers on those things. We make it so exceptionally easy in a way that, that no one's ever made it this easy before. That tends to lead to really happy outcomes because, you know, I describe to people like the shopping method is, you know, you've been putting it off, you've been putting it off for weeks, months, or years. You're now sitting at your at your computer on a Saturday morning and got your full pot of coffee and like you're expecting like to put in some real energy. And then you get to branch and you, you know, you could be done in 30 seconds uh, or you could chat or call in to speak with someone, in which case you may be done in however long you want to spend. Um, and it just wasn't hard at all. And the thing then because we're delivering so effectively on the things consumers already know they want, then the real surprise is that you sh- we're also delivering on what you should want. And what you should want is you should want an experience like you're calling your wealth manager because it's your money. It's your money like if you're a State Farm or a, um, a nationwide customer, it's your money. But it's when you get a phone call from your wealth manager you know, they're operating with you with your money. And if they don't do well by you with your money, you know it and they know it. Mm. And they know that the better they perform for you, the more business they'll likely do with you with your Mm. money. And so 
when you're working with branch, the next thing that you'll feel is that branch is not an insurance company in its traditional sense. In structurally as a reciprocal, branch is a manager of the cooperative. And in that model, we are a facilitator of the capital coming in and the capital going out on the membership's behalf. And so that's not easily understood. We don't have to sell it to you up front but you will experience it over the lifetime, over our customer journey. We have built it into every aspect of how you'll interact with your insurance in a way that ultimately we're also trying to reintroduce the idea that because it's your money, you should think about how you use it. Because if it's abused, recognize that you will have to pay more into it, but also your neighbors will have to pay more into it. And we use technology and Uh, some really interesting regulatory structure to incent some of those really old behaviors uh, that can give a better underwriting outcome, which can lead to less expensive insurance again. So the pool or the group, the community benefits off the back of that in the long run, which is great. Steve, if I can ask you about the biggest challenge that you've faced so far with launching and looking to scale this business, being the biggest and the hardest hurdle that you've had to overcome so far. Nick, it's a great question. I think if I generalized it, the biggest challenges are always those that those things that you rely upon that you can't control. And as a startup, especially in insurance, I think just for the sheer complexity relative to other businesses I've managed, you end up reliant on a lot of people early, right? I mean, it's it's in part because the barriers to entry are so high, uh, which you know ultimately you get to appreciate once you beat them all. Um, but up until that point, a lot of it has to revolve around capital because capital can solve a lot of problems that are subscale problems. But all of your counterparties are going to underwrite you multiple times. I, I like to give this example that when we first started, a, a tech startup, data intensive as insurance is, we didn't have an NAIC number because we started as something more like an MGA for for the first many months uh, before the reciprocal was approved. And uh, one of the data vendors had said to us, hey, well, we're going to, we need to come inspect your premises. And I'm looking around thinking, okay, well, the upstairs bedroom of my house might, I don't know what they're looking for, but it might not satisfy. So I start asking questions like, well, what are you looking for in this on-site inspection? And ultimately, the inspection was to ensure that we had a local recycle bin, a printer, and shredder inside of a office with a deadbolt, right? And this was basically under the presumption that we would be printing out reams of consumer data and sitting it somewhere in the space. And so, you know, we ended up taking out office space, more professional office space. You know, I think this was probably about eight months before we had any employees, Um, but we took it out because we were underwritten differently as a startup. And I'm not judging whether that's a right practice or wrong practice, but these things that you you would take for granted as um, capital providers, debt lenders, d- data partners, uh, reinsurers, uh, I mean, you can go on and on because mm-hmm. these parties will never understand your business and how it works the way you do. And they have their own inertia, right? And uh, it's comfortable, back to a quote I gave you earlier, it's comfortable to not take a risk. 
And like their businesses won't be different this year than you in your first year as a startup. And so all of our hardest things have been of that complexion. And, you know, even at our present scale, we're growing as fast as we are. We still have those kinds of things continuously. Great stuff. Such a challenge, isn't it, to grow and to scale whilst also the regulation, the compliance, the high barriers to entry that are there, overcoming them as you're building the business. Huge, huge challenge. It sounds like it's going really well, Steve. Steve, it brings us nicely onto the espresso round now where the questions are, are short, sharp and straight to the point. So I know you're normally more of a, a tea drinker over there, but are you ready for the espresso round now? Let's do it. The espresso round. Steve, how many people are you looking to grow the business by in the next 12 months? Not certain the next 12 months, uh, but in the next in the last six months, we've added about 240, which was more than doubling our staff over that period. And in the next six months, it'll probably be a similar number, you know, not growing staff quite as fast as we have been, but still a lot to fill. So just to take us back on those numbers, because incredible numbers, business started in early 2018. In the last six months, you've grown the business by 240 people. What's the total staff numbers that you have there at the moment? We're just over, I think we're about 410 or 420 at this point, Nick. So as well as the huge amount of growth and scale that you're that you're generating here, what are the culture, what are the values that you're also looking to build within the business? Nick, we have um we have a set of principles at branch that we call our roots. Uh, there's a lot of tree imagery and metaphor yeah. here, but our roots, we, we built them really early to describe. Uh, what it means to be us and to give people the ability before they hired to know if if we sh- you know shared values and if they thought that they'd be successful and have the ability to make an impact. We are looking for people that are really interested in making an impact who have an experience set of what could be better and can bring that to benefit our community. And we have a, a culture of, of service, uh, which is our business. Uh, in a culture that includes a lot of humility. And the structure of it's worked really well. I might've told you that Glassdoor pinged us uh, early this year to say that by their algorithm, not by anything we applied for, we were the, I think it was the 13th best place to work in small and medium-sized business. This is like out of hundreds of thousands of US firms. And uh, the team's highly engaged. You know, if I described you our method, the idea we had was if we had a clear mission, and ours is clear and unchanged since before we launched, which was to make insurance less expensive so more people could be covered, then you could define a brand that would resonate that wouldn't have to sound like everyone else's brand. Because if you listen to everyone in insurance, it's people who switched saved, saving, saving, savings is the message uh, and funny mascot, right? And so then you could design a brand that would resonate and describe who you could be to them that would be different. And if you could live that brand through your company culture, then that's the only way the brand would live. And then your membership would feel it. And I think it was one of the more powerful things that we did that is ultimately hard to measure. But the relationship between our Glassdoor reviews and our customer, our member reviews, you know, they're both at or around five stars Yeah. On, in an industry that that's abnormal. Uh, and, uh, you know, the question that I get on the all hands meeting every few months, because so many of us are new that often is how do we keep this 
this company mm-hmm. culture we have. Uh, and I'm, you know, just excited that people keep asking it because it means that we have going from zero employees to 400. How have you done that, Steve? How have you kept that culture whilst you know, scaling at such speed? You know, companies bringing on 240 people in six months, you know, very high probability that those feedback scores, those customer satisfaction scores are going to take a nosedive while people embed into the business. So how have you managed to do that? Nick, I think it's a combination of many things. First is we've been really intentional in caring about it. Uh, and that, you know, a lot of us are seasoned operators and we recognize that that we're not doing it ourselves and that it's the combined effort. Uh, and so like how you achieve aligned talent density drives whether or not you ever achieve the dreams of the business, right? But having then built an infrastructure that doesn't require people to guess Because in any scaled business, what you end up having is, you know, one SVP and another SVP are competing for resources. And if the mission isn't clear, then they're doing the best that they can to choose what the agenda is. But the agenda also becomes a little naturally more about what makes me famous than what gets us to the mission because the mission's unclear. And there are very few businesses you know, I had 1500 insurance company customers in my last job. And, you know, the mission or the vision, depending on how they articulated, it was very frequently profitably grow leader in the marketplace, right? And like, that's not something people can rally around or understand or set priorities to. And so like laying out a structure of this is who we are. And if that sounds like something you want to be a part of, come join us, um, plus a clear mission and then real discipline around pruning, you know, the, the tree, that there becomes a positive pressure if you don't allow, right? I mean, I think the cardinal sin in culture is, well, that guy or gal doesn't fit the culture at all, but he or she gets results. And so we can't argue with that. Mm. And it's like, no, we can argue with that. There are lots of people that could get results. Our requirement as us, as managers as an, and employees, is to create a positive pressure for the behaviors that align us so that we can achieve and live the brand for our members can persist. And I think that ecosystem is why we've been able to maintain it. Uh, it's, it's not without challenge, and it requires a lot of discipline and a lot of you know just regard for culture, but so far working well. Yeah, really well. When you hire people from the insurance industry, from people who've had careers, very successful careers at legacy insurance companies, insurance businesses, what are some of the values that these types of people can bring to your organization? Although you you might be doing it in a different way there, what's the sort of value that someone like that can bring to your business? I think the, the most amazing thing that each of us bring from our prior lives is a real sense of if I had a green field and I could do this differently, like I know exactly how it worked when I did it in a different controlled environment and the ability to experiment so nimbly with that deep expertise is what brings richness quickly, right? Mm-hmm. And we think of we think of rapid iteration as an information gain that's a lot like an invested an invested asset. Because the sooner you gain information, the sooner that information can multiply, can compound on itself. And so, you know, what we love is people who have real conviction and can um, bring expertise to a problem and solve the problem instead of do what's always been done. And, And some of the things 
that have always been done are good things. And so you have to recognize and respect those things, but you can only do that if you understand them for, for what they do and why. Uh, and so our one of our roots, our first root is called Ask Why. And we'd like everybody to be challenging the status quo and each other in a positive way with positive intent. But people with expertise who come from a, a barrier background, you know, they love they love it here um, because we, we give them the ability to do, you know, to do the thing that they're uniquely capable to do for us. On their own green field there, which is fantastic. A great opportunity for you know, there's not many of those opportunities around in the insurance world, that's for sure. Steve, final question of the espresso round. If there are any founders, any insured tech leaders at the moment who are looking to scale their business quickly, like you've done over the previous 12 months, what are some of the foundations? What are some of the infrastructure that you feel needs to be in place in order to achieve that scale? Yeah, Nick, it's, it'll be a little different depending on what kind of insurance business that, that you're trying to build. Um, if you're building a business where you're writing or underwriting insurance, then I think installing the ethos that you will grow as fast as your loss ratio target will allow you to is a, is a correct statement and important because it, it requires that you then know what that target should be and how your capital structure, right? Ultimately, premium is the stacked capital that, that we lay out in, in our filings to the regulators or, or that the actuarial indications are built off of. But you should be able to describe why the model will work so that you know quickly if it won't. If you're a writer or not a writer, uh, then I think ensuring that you've chosen the right capital model for your business and you've got the right um, people on the team. And I, I think looking back, you know, we were on a, uh, we had rented a pontoon boat on a lake years ago, and we were sitting around with some of our contractors and uh, Joe and I, and our first employees laying down the cultural principles that we now use. And that seemed a little weird at the time. I mean, we were all in on doing it, but to have like two employees and be writing like defining the culture, you know, there there's this idea that this is an, I think it's an Eisenhower quote that plans are useless, but planning is indispensable. Mm. Uh, that um, especially around people, you know, that uh, you can't really overinvest early. And, mm. you know, like, like I mentioned about people coming from a carrier background, this was an, another place where we had a lot of things that had not worked well for us in our collective corporate histories. And frequently with my new branchers that are coming from big corporations, I'm just asking them to consider like, what baggage might you be bringing that you don't even know you have? Because it's the way you've been trained, right? It's the way that you grew up. And just ask yourself if that's good baggage or bad baggage, right? Because, you know, you, br you bring it with you. And from that, we've defined a lot of our culture uh, and a lot of uh, our benefits programs and how we treat each other all in the context of a mission. The last thing I'd mention is you should be solving like a real problem and have a real articulable way to uh, say how you are solving that problem. So if you've got a clear problem to solve, which is then your becomes your mission, you've got the right team and you've got the right capital, I think you'll be off to a great start. Uh, that all sounds easier than it is. Uh, so, you know, best of luck to anybody uh, and, you know, happy to uh, take a pinger here and there on LinkedIn uh, if awesome. people are trying to figure something out. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Steve would certainly appreciate that. Is that best way for someone to reach out to you after the show today? It's probably the easiest way. Yeah. Yeah. And I apologize if I don't respond 
immediately, but uh, I will find all those LinkedIn hits uh, not too not too distant future. That's great. No, we we understand that you're a very busy man and you're building something absolutely fantastic there. So Steve, thank you so much for your time today. It has been really, really insightful to speak to you and, and learn from you. Seeing how you're going around building Branch is fantastic. Love to get you on the show again in the future to see how things are going, see how things are progressing. But thank you for your time today. And uh, yeah, I hope you've enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much, Nick. It's great to be with you and I'd look forward to that future event. Absolutely. Thank you, Steve. And to all the InsureTech leaders, to all the insurance leaders out there, wherever you're listening around the world today, we thank you for joining us on the show. Sure, you would have gained a lot of great learnings from what Steve's had to say today. If you did enjoy the show, please remember to download and subscribe to the pod to receive each one of our episodes directly into your app each week. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show, I'd like to learn more about the competitive advantage that podcasts can give to your business when attracting talent. Please reach out to us at insurance-search.com or drop us a message on LinkedIn. Until next time, I've been Nick Codley. This has been the Insurance Coffee House Global InsureTech Series. Take care. You've been listening to the Insurance Coffee House with Nick Hoadley. Join us next time to hear more insights and inspiring success stories to help you become a better insurance business leader. Available to download or subscribe now.